Hey, science nerds, welcome back to another episode of the MRSA podcast, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of the science leaders that is fostering. My name is Jadeep, and I'll be your co-host today, alongside my other co-host, Daphne. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the MRSA podcast. So you might recognize today's guests from your first year psychology courses as part of Math Intrapsych. Today, we're honored to be joined by Dr. Joe Kim from the Department of Psychology, Neuroscience and Behavior. Dr. Kim is a fully tenured associate professor with areas of expertise spanning cognitive psychology and education science. He runs the Education and Cognition Lab, or EDCOG Lab, here at McMaster, and has focused his research on all things pertaining to the science of durable learning. In addition, Dr. Kim also consults on various um, policy groups on curriculum and education consultation, such as the Council of Ontario University's online workgroup and the Innovation and Productivity Roundtable for the Ontario Ministry of Training, Colleges and University. So Dr. Kim, it's a privilege to have you on the show today and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So today we'll be delving deeper into your education science research by discussing lab theory, the role of instructors and students in durable learning, the practical applications of your research, and lastly, the role of undergrads in your lab and what we look for and what you look for in undergrads. But before we get into all of that, would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, your ac- academic journey, um, your field of research, and how you ended up here at McMaster University? Okay, so um, I'm associate. Uh, professor in psychology, neuroscience, and behavior. Uh, My background training uh, as an undergrad was in biology and psychology. So I was, I've been always interested in everything about uh, the human brain, uh, the mind, how we think and make decisions. Um, And my research lab uh, focuses on uh, applying everything that we know about how the mind works, attention, memory, learning, and applying this to authentic uh, teaching and learning situations. Um, And so for me, it's a really fun area of research to do because it's grounded in theory, how we understand how people think and learn, but it's so practical. So at the end of the day, figuring out how we could improve training, how we can improve teaching and learning uh, has so much return. So for me, um, it's so exciting to do. Awesome. So to start off, uh, Dr. Kim, we wanted to begin by briefly asking you uh, a bit about the background theory that's involved in the science of learning. So for our listeners, could you explain and sort of summarize how exactly do psychologists approach this idea of uh, studying the idea of learning in the lab? Okay, so that's a really good question. And I think there are many different researchers uh, who could contribute to helping us to understand the scholarship of teaching and learning. Um, I think that cognitive psychologists have a lot to add to this. So cognitive psychologists are interested in understanding how humans make decisions, how we think, how we learn, how we pay attention. So all of these are essential cognitive skills that are needed to learn. And so by using this as a a theoretical foundation, we could develop experiments in a controlled lab setting where um, we could really manipulate variables and we could really figure out what's going on. So we might, uh, for example, in one set of experiments, um, have students listen to a lecture with one set of slides and in another condition have a different set of slides. And then we could see, well, which condition leads to better focused attention, which one seems more interesting to them, which one's more motivating, and also which one leads to better uh, comprehension and long-term durable learning. Then we can take those results and extend them into a real world setting, like a classroom. And so that example I just gave you, um, that type of experiment would inform us how we should design our online web modules so that they're more interesting, they're more engaging, they're more motivating, and ultimately lead to better learning uh, in students. So this kind of combination of testing things out in a controlled lab setting 
figuring out the variables of interest and then applying it into a real classroom and then seeing how uh, that might improve student learning outcomes. So I think that's a, a, a great way uh, to do this type of research. Awesome, and I, and I agree because the, the lab gives you the benefit of controlling a lot of variables so that you can deduce you know, which sort of uh, learning practices are most effective. But as a result, you know, because the lab is highly controlled, how do psychology researchers also attempt to you know, replicate real life scenarios to ensure that the to ensure the real life application of their studies uh, beyond the lab and in the actual classroom. Yeah, so that's a good question too. Um, because when you're running an experiment, like say you sign up for a SONA experiment, you might be thinking, well, you know, maybe the people just don't take it that seriously. Um, you know, how can we really generalize results from a lab to a classroom? So there's always kind of this tension. In a lab, you could tightly control everything, um, but maybe it's not quite the same thing as real life. And in the classroom, it is real life, but you can't really control anything. So it's really hard to figure out what's actually driving any potential effect. Well, I will tell you about this one amazing facility we have called the Live Lab. So if you've ever walked by the psychology building and you saw that second floor, it looks almost kind of like this futuristic silver uh, uh, floor. That's the Live Lab. And it's a 120 seat uh, lecture hall slash performance theater. And it's really designed for doing world-class uh, groundbreaking research. So I use it, for example, as a classroom. So this is a lecture hall. So we have students come listening to a lecture and we might be interested in understanding, well, what are the conditions that lead students to pay better attention and be interested in uh, the lecture and do better on a comprehension test? And what's great about this facility is that it's not just some cold, dark, uh, laboratory room. It's an actual lecture hall. It looks amazing. And there are so many cool measures that we could do. So for example, 40 of the seats are wired, any ones that we choose so that we can measure from, uh, uh, you know, a student participant, EEG, galvanic skin response, heart rate, motion capture, you know, anything that you could really think of. And so we can ask very sophisticated questions. So you might we might be interested, for example, is you know, how motivated are these students? How well are they paying attention? How do you find that out? Well, you could ask them, you know, how well are you paying attention? Was your mind focused? But there's a problem with just pure introspection like that. One, how well does the participant actually know? How well can they judge their own uh, motivation and interest? Um, and secondly, maybe they're just trying to please the experimenter. So we can actually uh, look at uh, what we're developing as a neurophysiological signature for attention and mind wandering. So we're combining EEG, galvanic skin response and heart rate variability as this neurophysiological marker indicative of focused attention. And it'll be really interesting for us to even compare, you know, what, see what a person self-reports versus what this neurophysiological data uh, shows. So um, I think that's the compromise, having a facility like this, that's an actual classroom where we control the variables that feels natural, like you're in an actual lecture hall. That is very cool. I had definitely cool. seen it when I walked by and I've always like wondered what, what type of research goes on there. And so we've talked a lot, or you've mentioned a bit about attention, but um, you've also in your research focused a lot about um, the impl implication or impacts of working memory and how that plays into, um, or is a good predictor of academic success and also in learning in general. Um, so we we're wondering how um, you kind of test that in the lab and why it's sort of an important idea um, in durable learning and how that affects it? Well, working memory capacity is uh, just one of many different traits uh, that you know, will have individual differences. There's processing speed, there's executive function, there's working memory capacity. Um, and one of the general findings uh, we've come across is that Many of the um, uh, variables that improve learning um, uh, and make learning more durable, especially are beneficial 
for someone with low lower working memory capacity. So, you know how if you if you have a group of students, uh, you know you might have some just highly performing students. Uh, no matter what, they're probably going to do just fine. Like even if you had the worst possible teaching conditions, they're still probably going to do just fine. You're going to have like a small group of students like that. But then there's the rest of the class, the majority of the class. And what our research has demonstrated is that when you implement um, practices from the science of learning, like interleaving, retrieve practice, spacing, uh, elaborative rehearsal, uh, problem-based learning activities that promote active learning, when you introduce these types of um, interventions that are designed right into the course, it benefits most of the class that way. So that's why, excuse me, it's such a worthwhile investment uh, to make. I agree. These sort of uh, student-based uh, interventions are very important to, you know, maximize and uh, ensure that there's durable learning in the long, long term. And to shift our attention now, we will get back to that, but we, I wanted to uh, shift the discussion away uh, toward the idea of the role of instructors in durable learning. So in your research, uh, Daphne, I've noticed that you focus a lot on multimedia design, such as the way PowerPoint slides are formatted and the way the actual audio part of the lecture is delivered. And this relates back to the idea you talked about earlier of different experimental conditions, seeing which multimedia design is uh, more effective than the other. And you know, it's also referenced in a lot of your work. So for our listeners, could you discuss some of the detrimental common practices that are seen in the way instruction is delivered today, which is you know, backed up by uh, uh, psychological research? Well, okay, there's a lot uh, that I can say about this. But let me start here. So first, when you think about the presentation and delivery of course content, that's uh, you know, one of the core parts of teaching. Um, and engaging in practices that allow for effective presentation design, um, it's gonna make everything better. It's going to make your students more engaged. It's going to make the information more meaningful. Um, and motivate your students, right? So um, there's two different parts to that. One is structuring and organizing information. So uh, a professor who gives a lecture, uh, they're gonna be a subject matter expert and the audience, the class of students that's listening, they are not yet experts, they are novices. And so, one of the things that an instructor can do is to organize, structure, uh, and provide a scaffold for that information so that this novice audience can understand this information and move towards thinking like an expert about that. So that's just kind of the basic structure organization of lectures. Um, and then some, uh, you know, we've, we have done a lot of research on multimedia uh, learning principles. And what we've shown is that uh, certain types of uh, slide designs better complement uh, a lecture experience uh, than others. So I think the worst possible experience, and I think we've all had this experience, I certainly uh, have seen this a lot at research conferences, um, you know, whatever time limit person has, whether it's five minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, um, they're just jam packing as much information as possible on slides that are all bullet points of text. And in the worst case scenario, they're just reading these bullet points uh, aloud. And, you know, obviously that's gonna be a very boring experience and it's not going to be a very uh, productive experience. So that's one part. A second part is uh, coming up with effective assessments. So even if you give the best uh, uh, lecture presentations, if you don't match it up with effective assessments that are fair and challenging, um, it's not gonna be an accurate reflection of the experience that students go through in a course, right? So mm -hmm. I think the reputation for the assessments in Mac Control Psych is that the questions aren't easy. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's true. But I hope what the students do experience and what I've heard from many students is that 
they're they're challenging, but it's a fair question. Um, and to kind of just give you some insight into the quality control that we do, uh, we're constantly writing more and more questions to add to our question bank so that students get a random selection of questions. They go through a lot of quality control. And um, uh, every week we flag any potential questions. If an unusual number of students got a question wrong, or there's something called the point by serial correlation that shows that you know a certain question just didn't seem to be very effective, we'll flag it ahead of time, review it, and make any adjustments necessary. And so, um, we have a course, uh, you know, every week we have uh, over 3,000 students taking Mac Intro Psych. Guess how many people come in or send an email to complain about any quiz question on any given week? The average is less than one a week. Oh, wow. Oh, really? So just think about that. That's extremely low. That's wow. almost no one is complaining. And I think that's reflective of a very fair uh, assessment process. Uh, there's a lot of quality control uh, that goes into that. So I think those are two parts that are really important, delivering effective, uh, effectively delivering course material, and then effectively assessing students' understanding of the course material that you delivered. Um, so that's the part of the instructor. Yeah, definitely. And um, I guess like maybe for our viewers who don't real aren't familiar with Mac Intersight, could you like it kind of explain what the blended learning format is and what it entails? Yeah, so um, we use a blended learning format, which means that we combine online learning resources with uh, classroom uh, teaching. So uh, we have the primary course content delivered through our web modules, which uh, we spend a lot of time creating and updating, and we're constantly collecting feedback to improve them. Uh, you know, over the last year, we've made all of our, every single one of our web modules AODA compliant, which I'm really uh, proud of and excited that we've been able to accomplish. Um, these are meant to be designed to be self-paced learning. And so, you as a student can go through it. You can pause it. There are checkpoint questions that challenge you to answer before you move on to the next section. Uh, you know, uh, some of them we have extra videos. Um, overall, uh, I think students really enjoy our web modules. And if you've never seen one and you, you're curious, uh, just go to macintropsych.com and you can see a sample web module. So that's where students get their primary course content. Um, then they come to a lecture on Monday with me or Dr. Kedia. Um, and the point of this lecture is not to simply repeat everything that was in the web module uh, at a granular level. Instead, the point of this lecture is to um, show you applications. Why is this week's course content so important for you to know? So we always have case studies, applications, demonstrations, um, I think it's almost like a TED talk of this week's course content of why it's so important and how it connects to our previous week's content and how it connects to all of psychology and helping you understand the world. Our lectures and then um, later in the week, students also attend a small group tutorial. So even though it's the largest course on campus, uh, students still have in first year or what most students would be their smallest classroom experience. Uh, so 20 to 25 students are in your tutorial and they're led by an undergraduate teaching assistant. And these TAs are phenomenal. They, uh, they love their job. It's highly selective every year. We have about 150 to 200 people apply and only 20 people are hired. Uh, new TAs are hired. These new TAs actually take a course with me uh, in the fall called the Science of Teaching and Learning. So they learn all about the theory and practice of teaching. And one of the things we do, for example, is every Friday, all of the TAs we meet to preview and go through next week's upcoming tutorial. So we go through all the mechanics, all the theory, all the practice. And so when they walk into their tutorial, they really know what they're doing. 
And um, all of these parts work together. And uh, I think the students uh, really like it. So based on their satisfaction um, and their attendance. So in our tutorials and our lectures, across the year, the entire semester holding steady, we have over 95% attendance. So students really show up. They really uh, enjoy uh, these classroom components to complement uh, the online web modules. Mm -hmm. so I agree. So Daphne and I can both agree that, you know, we enjoy the intro-psych experience. And I think one of the uh, components that really makes it stand out because the uh, implementation of these sort of low stakes sort of assessments. So instead of having like, like uh, you learn for three, four weeks, then you have a midterm, you have these sort of weekly quizzes to help you to uh, uh, synthesize the week's knowledge and uh, help you help in uh, maintaining durable, long lasting learning. So how does uh, psychological or education uh, research support that? Yeah, so everything that we learn about the science of learning in the lab and from research from others, uh, we really work to bake into the actual structure and the design of the course. So that's why instead of having infrequent high stakes testing that's not cumulative, uh, we have uh, frequent low stakes testing. And the whole point of this testing is uh, to train you and to help you build durable learning. So um, I, I really want students to uh, approach their study as an investment in building long-term durable learning. So if you just cram and then maybe you, you, you've done well enough to get by in the midterm, but then that information is gone, that's a, that's a bad investment. That's, that's sort of a waste of time because now when it comes to the final exam, you kind of have to recram all of that plus all the new stuff plus do this for all of your other courses and it's just like a it, it's almost like a like a uh, a temporary high interest proprietary loan <laughs> like a payday loan that you're kind of just falling into this trap uh, and you're not really getting any long-term benefit from it so that's why we build in all these structures so that you're making these consistent uh, uh, deposits into your long-term knowledge. Other things that we do, we space it out. We have interleaving. So there are concepts always connected from the previous week. So I don't know if you remember, but in your tutorials, we always have practice questions that connect this week's content with the previous week's content. And that's to demonstrate, well, you can't just forget what you learned the week before. All of this connects together uh, towards our complete understanding of human behavior and thought. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so we talked a lot about um, the, I guess, the core structure of Mac InterPsych and how we looked at um, the individual small tutorials and um, how those are really beneficial for interactive learning and discussion. But how do you think the pandemic has really affected that in terms of being able to have that in-person component um, in the tutorials? Yeah, so I think there are really interesting lessons that have emerged from the pandemic. Uh, so first of all, this is probably not going to be the last pandemic that we experience, right? So I think universities have to be ready and uh, be flexible and nimble, uh, not just for a pandemic, but for any type of situation. Uh, and so I think building courses that have blended learning makes you future-proof and prepared for all the different challenges that emerge. So I would say, because we've had so much experience with Mac Control Psych, we were definitely ahead of the curve and ready for teaching in the pandemic. But there's also really interesting things that we learned during the pandemic. So um, during my uh, Monday lectures that are delivered online, um, I, I've been so blown away by how much students participate in our chat. It, there's so much participation that we have two dedicated TAs that moderate the discussion during the lecture. And um, it's really interesting the questions that students ask. So some of these are pure clarification questions, like what does he mean by dorsal 
instead of ventral. And then they get an instant answer. And then the student, uh, you know, uh, would be like, oh, okay, great. Now I can understand the rest of this lecture. And that's a great thing because that's a question that you probably aren't going to ask in a lecture hall because ah, you don't want to, you don't want to look, you know, like you're asking a bad question, but it's a small question that would help. And so we find about 25% of the, the questions and comments posted are just pure clarification questions. Uh, sometimes I'm actively soliciting responses. So uh, I remember when I was talking about social psychology, I said, you know, can you tell me the three top characteristics of the typical student that goes to McMaster University? And then, you know, we'll call out, well, Daphne says that uh, they're diligent, athletic, and good looking. Uh, and then, um, and that's, by the way, that's another great thing. Actually calling out students' names of people who participated, it's kind of exciting. Um, and then I might say, well, what are the three characteristics of the typical student that goes to Western University? And, you know, I'll say, well, you know, Jaideep says uh, they're usually spoiled, they're rich, <laughs> and, uh, you know, not the brightest star in the sky. So this is really interesting for students to be able to participate. Um, and um, so I've developed this kind of, kind of system where I'm interacting with the online TAs who are kind of representing the students uh, for demo demonstrations. We, I ask them, so what are people saying? And they'll go through uh, the chat. Sometimes just people write the funniest comments and then we publish them. Um, so in a 50 minute lecture, how many comments do you think we get? Like like maybe over a hundred, like thousands of yeah. because you have that many students attending a Monday lecture. Well, we have 600 people in a lecture section. Oh, okay. So our, the average number of comments and responses we get every lecture is 350. Okay. That's <laughs> a okay. lot. Yeah, that is a lot. Right? That's a lot. So in an actual lecture hall, I might get five questions, right? But here we're getting over 350 average. Uh, per lecture. And what a lot of students have told me is that, yeah, if I were in the lecture hall, I would never would have asked that question or made that comment. But here I feel comfortable doing that. So that's an important lesson. So moving forward, uh, hopefully in January, we're going to be uh, giving our lectures in person. We're going to have a live chat. So while the lecture is going on, you can chat, you could ask these clarifying questions, you can vote on things, you can um, post comments, and then we'll publish uh, uh, the top ones and people can like them, upvote them, all sorts of things. So I think that's a great uh, take home that we got uh, from the pandemic. Um, and then the other take home is that um, we're a blended model, we're gonna move into the next phase where we're high flex. So starting next fall, hopefully everything will be back to normal. We'll have the online web modules, in-person lecture, in-person tutorial, but we're also gonna have one lecture section that's online. And we're gonna have a selection of tutorials that are online. And so a student could then have the experience of all the components of the course and potentially never have to come on campus. And then we'll have a recording of that online lecture as a reference for everyone in the course to review afterwards as well. So these are all kind of lessons that we've learned from the pandemic that we're gonna take moving forward. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like it's safe to say that like, the pandemic has emphasized the technology side of like your blended learning format. And I love this to see that you're taking it away like, and like moving towards like using some of the components and some of the, I guess the difficulties we were pushed into through the pandemic as we move towards more normality. Um, so I was wondering um, why you think it's really only taken for, I guess, for other courses, not just for Mac Intersec, um, only taken the pandemic for um, professors to really see the benefit of e-learning um, components like uh, pre-recorded lectures or learning management systems like Microsoft Teams that maybe perhaps um, Mac Intersec has implemented for years. <laughs> Well, professors are human beings, just like everyone else. Um, we could ask similar questions like, why, why didn't people ever uh, seriously consider having like virtual meetings or 
um, hybrid schedules where they work from home some days, work from the office some days. Um, prior to the pandemic, people said, yeah, we can't really do that. That doesn't really make sense. And the pandemic kind of just forced us into this experiment of just trying it. So um, to me, that's sort of the silver lining from this very difficult and challenging experience that we've gone through. Um, it sort of forced people to uh, rethink their pedagogy and rethink how they teach, rethink how they work, where they work. So I think the future, for example, of meetings is going to be, um, some people will be there in person and some people will be joining online. And we need to uh, up our technology game so that it's seamless. So that, uh, you know, if people are joining into an online meeting and it's bad audio and you can't really see anyone else in the room, um, that's not gonna be really accessible. So as we redesign meeting rooms, it's going to, it's, it, they're going to need to have built-in technology so that anyone can seamlessly join in a meeting. And it makes so much sense. So if the only other obligation I have um, on my schedule for a given day uh, is a meeting at the end of the day, it would be much more productive for me perhaps to be able to go home and get some work done, uh, you know, wait for a delivery that's also supposed to come uh, and then join, hop onto the meeting uh, virtually. That's going to make things more productive for me, probably make me happier. Uh, so I think it all makes sense. So, uh, you know, the short answer is that um, when people are forced to do things, uh, innovation can happen. Awesome. And just to like bring this idea sort of home as we tie it together, as we tie this together, you mentioned about, you know, rethinking uh, how instructors work. So, you know, all this information is truly fascinating, but how difficult is it to inform, you know, curriculum development? So, and is your, your lab, is your research involved in informing curriculum development or, you know, providing education or training to educators to enhance and improve the way that content is taught effectively? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, my lab is just one of many labs uh, that are doing this. Uh, we're trying to do our research as quickly as possible to the relevant questions that come up. It takes time. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll just share with you like one really cool study that we just did. So in this online environment, so we're on a Zoom meeting right now and I could see you at the top of my screen. Um, what's really interesting, imagine we're in a tutorial section where there's 20 students online. Um, and I don't know what your experience has been with tutorials, but in some tutorials, depending on individual preferences and the culture of the, of the class, some students might not have their cameras on, right? I'm sure it's been it's yeah. quite a big <laughs> I agree with that. So how does that make a difference? Well, I, you know, my gut feeling is that if you had, everyone had their cameras on and everyone is fully engaged uh, and motivated, it's going to create a much better learning atmosphere, right? So we actually tested this idea out. So we had students in a, a lab-based study where they had to join in a lecture online. Um, so, and uh, the variable that we were interested in looking at was um, how contagious uh, is the experience of uh, seeing the other students in your class and how engaged they are, right? And, uh, you know, if I could jump right to the conclusion, basically, if you have other people on your screen that are engaged and motivated, that changes your perception of the entire lecture. And it also changes how well you do on that test. Now, <laughs> this might make kind of just sense, right? So uh, in the classroom, so here's an idea. So one instructor that I know um, at the front, she reserves like the first two rows at the very front of the lecture hall. And it's called like the splash zone. And um, uh, periodically, uh, depending on how her course, people are assigned to the splash zone. So this is an area where you can get cold called. And in a very friendly way, it's a non-confrontational way, but basically if you're in the splash zone, be prepared, you might be called upon. And 
my gut feeling is that when people are assigned to the splash zone, they're probably paying better attention. They're probably really engaged and motivated. And we could almost think of people in the splash zone as being a trendsetter or like a role model for all the other students in the class because they're kind of the focus, right? And so I guess I was kind of thinking of, imagine the virtual equivalent of that. So there's 20 people in your tutorial, but this week, these four people are going to be in the virtual splash zone, right? And I, my mm -hmm. gut feeling is that that would probably improve virtual um, learning experiences. So, Because one of the things that people complain about is that uh, there's something missing in a virtual uh, classroom from an, uh, an in-person classroom. And it's probably like the social connection, these social cues. Uh, and so that's why some of the research that we're looking at is looking at ways to improve learning conditions in this virtual environment. Yeah, I definitely agree. Like as close as much as we can't be in person, just having um, other students cameras on really makes a big difference. And now that we're talking about um, students and their um, learning experience, um, we want to kind of touch on how um, they what their role is in durable learning. So we've watched um, one of your previous talks that you've given at McMaster, I think a few years ago, and you shared a really interesting analogy about a tree cutter and the importance of sharpening the saw um, when it comes to learning effectively. So we were wondering um, if you could share that analogy with our um, listeners and highlight, highlight how it's important to um, sharpen the saw or why it's important to be proactive um, when it comes to durable learning. Sure. Um... So I think a, a common experience for students and professors and, you know, just really anyone that's busy uh, working with information uh, is a feeling of being overwhelmed, right? So the analogy of, of, the, of the woodcutter is this. So um, a woodcutter has this task of, uh, of sawing down 10 logs. So he goes to the forest uh, with his saw and he sees the first tree and he gets to work and he starts sawing. And the problem is that it's not the sharpest saw. It's kind of rusty. It's, it's a bit dull, but nevertheless, he's highly motivated. He goes, okay, I just got to get through this. And he starts sawing away. Um, and then, you know, a little boy walks by uh, and says, uh, what are you doing? And, uh, you know, the man says, well, isn't it obvious? I, I'm, I'm trying to saw down this tree. And after I do this, I've got nine more to do. So kind of, you know, go on your way, get out of the way. And then the little boy says, well, have you noticed that your sharp is not very soft? Not very, uh, you, <laughs> have you noticed that your saw is not very sharp? In fact, it looks pretty dull. And the man looks and says, yeah, I can see that, but uh, I don't have time to sharpen this saw. I, I'm so busy. And I think that really captures the, the feeling that a lot of students have, that they're so busy, they're just jumping from one emergency to the next emergency. But a better approach would be to take a moment and sharpen that saw and then getting through everything that much more efficiently and productively. And so one of the basic things that I tell students is that um, you have to structure and organize your time. Um, so, uh, every single day you should have a basic plan of what you're going to get done today. And it's going to differ every day. So think about it this way. If this was the end of the day and I got the following items done, I'll consider that a win. And you have to be very realistic. You can't catch up on all of chemistry in one day but you can read chapter three on this day. And so um, it might help to, be helpful to do this the, the night before so that you can sleep better knowing that you have a plan for the next day. Plan out what are the items I'm going to get done and when am I going to do it and actually put into your calendar. So make an appointment with yourself because another uh, tendency that happens is that when you have open spots in your calendar, and you have nothing put into it, you might end up doing nothing. And I think periodically that's just fine. I think that'll help you to regenerate, 
live life a little bit, but that can't be what you do every day because then that catches up on you. You realize after dinner, I haven't got anything done. Now I got to try to catch up. You're feeling stressed. And then you end up staying up till two in the morning and then you don't get a very good night's sleep. And then the whole thing just repeats the next day. So by taking this basic plan of sharpening the saw, making, uh, planning out what you're going to get done, um, you have a much better chance. And then when you get those things done, what I always recommend to people is actually taking the rest of the night off. If you've got what you've agreed to do done, then enjoy the rest of your night, have a good dinner, do a workout, go for a walk, chat with friends, watch a show, rejuvenate and get regenerated for the next day. Uh, I agree. So this basically emphasizes the importance of being proactive, right? I can relate to a lot of what you just said, and these are really helpful tips. And I wanted to touch uh, a bit more about, upon that aspect of, you know, being realistic. So I was wondering if you could also go over some of the myths, which is backed up by psychological research, you know, the myths that exist with respect to uh, students and their preconceived notions of what is or what doesn't account, what is or what is not effective learning strategies? Well, I think um, students probably pick the study strategies that last worked effectively for them. And so that's probably going to be from high school. And so if you think about it, um, the students that end up at McMaster University, they were probably among the best students at their high school. Right. So they were at the top of their class. They, they did know what they're doing. Um, and the study habits that most people gained from high school uh, was probably cramming and memorization. And if you have tests that are mainly reflecting your ability to memorize and cram, then you're going to do just fine. The problem, of course, is when you get to university and you have tests that move beyond simple recall and recognition and really test your mastery of the concepts. Um, and one way to test mastery is, uh, can you um, demonstrate that you understand this concept in a brand new situation? Not one that's been provided to you before that you just simply memorized. Can you also show me this uh, uh, application of this concept in this brand new uh, scenario. So for example, you, you might know what an independent variable is, a confounding variable, and a dependent variable. You might know the definitions perfectly, but I might describe an experiment for you and say, is this an independent, confounding, or dependent variable, and why? That would be a question that actually challenges you to demonstrate your actual mastery of these concepts as opposed to simply being able to uh, recall a memorized definition. So um, that's why in Macintosh Psych, we actually have a week dedicated specifically to the science of learning. And um, we actually have it halfway through the year. And some students ask me, well, why didn't you just have this at the beginning of the year? Um, and the answer to that is because we did, we used to do that. And what most students uh, uh, would think is that, yeah, that looks pretty good, but it's not really something I need. Um, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the experience of going through and struggling a little bit and trying to find um, uh, an effective study, study set and trying to find an effective study strategy uh, really makes you more open to uh, seeing the evidence-based practices of the science of learning. That's very cool. And I, I, I know that we talk a lot about study strategies themselves, but, and maybe underestimate the importance of like maybe breaks. Could you talk about um, some of the research that your lab has done and the insight of how important breaks are and what type of breaks we should be taking while, while we're studying? Yeah, so I think the concept of breaks goes back, goes back to this idea of sharpening the saw. Uh, if you're just uh, like, you know, trying to chop down that tree uh, and just keep going until you're completely exhausted, uh, you're not really going to get very far. Uh, but similarly, 
when you're studying or you're trying to learn, if you just force yourself to sit in that chair and just go on and on, um, and if you keep rereading the same words over and over again and you can't even remember what you read, you're not getting much return on your investment. And so that's why I, my lab's been really interested in uh, looking at the implementation of strategic breaks, uh, especially when you're engaged in a very complex cognitive task, say, for example, a three-hour night class. Um, and, you know, for a three-hour night class, I think a very typical thing to happen is on the first class, the instructor might say, I'm going to give you guys two options. We could either plow through everything and I'll let you out early or, you know, we could, I could give you a couple of breaks. I think most people opt towards, well, okay, just keep going as fast as you can so that we can get out as early as possible. What our research demonstrates is that you're far better off putting in strategic breaks um, as a chance to sort of um, revitalize yourself, your attention, your memory, your motivation, your energy levels, right? So if you have a chance to replenish that um, or at least stop the decline, you're going to be in a far better learning situation. Mm -hmm. And I agree. I agree. And uh, just to uh, tie all of this information at home, we've talked a lot about, you know, the role of students incorporating, you know, uh, uh, smart breaks within your learning, as well as being proactive. Are there any other sort of tips that you can provide to our listeners that can help them to, you know, aid in their learning and help them succeed, which are, you know, again, backed by uh, psychological education research? Well, I, I, we've talked about different methods of studying with a science of learning with uh, retrieval practice, interleaving, spacing. We talked about this idea of taking breaks and actually planning out and being proactive. Um, I guess another part that we can talk about uh, is sleep and sleep management. It's often one of the things that are sacrificed. And in the short term, you're probably fine. In the short term, you can fast. In the short term, you could skip some sleep. But if you chronically do these things, um, it's going to catch up to you. So you might feel like you're okay by missing out on some sleep. But uh, if you keep doing that and you get very poor quality sleep, you're not going to be very well uh, alert and prepared. So I think uh, engaging in good sleep habits is a very important uh, element uh, of mental and physical well-being. So me personally, um, on weeknights, I sort of have a bedtime alarm. <laughs> so you know how you have an alarm to wake you up in the morning? I have an alarm to remind me to go to sleep. So during the week, I'm aiming to go to sleep around 11 p.m. So 10.45, 11 p.m. And you know, I happen to get up early. I get up probably about 6.30, Um, And about, and I have some sort of wind down routine as well. So uh, I'm not on my phone or any device for like an hour and a half to two hours before going to bed. And I'll do something that's a wind down activity. Like I'll take a bath, I'll read a book, I'll do yoga. Uh, I'll do something that gets me wound down. When you go on your phone and you're scrolling, especially if you're like doom scrolling about bad news, uh, worrying about all the things that you have due, how can you go to sleep peacefully after you've just loaded in all of this uh, stress and potential anxiety? So two hours before you plan to go to sleep, you should start the wind down process instead of winding yourself up. Those are very great points, and I hope our listeners can take away some great study tips and um, how to manage your sleep better. And so um, everything we talked about is super fascinating, and I just want to go back to the point about um, how, how maybe science, um, students in high school, um, there's a strong emphasis on memorization of information. Um, so I was just wondering, in terms of your research, how and informing curriculum development, um, how can you make sure that those changes um, are widespread and just beyond, um, for example, the university level and really um, 
infiltrate to, for example, before in high school, so that we're prepared for um, uh, university environment and testing styles. Well, that's a really big challenge, I think, for applying any scientific findings. Um, you know, how do you convince people to get vaccinated? <laughs> um, you know, there, there's, uh, so, you know, knowledge translation, I think, is, is an important challenge. And uh, in my case, for the research that I'm interested in, I organize an annual conference called the McMaster Conference on Education and Cognition. Uh, you can check it out at edcog.ca. And um, this is a conference where we bring together researchers, educators, and policymakers all into the same room and for the last two years, the virtual same room, so that these different groups have a chance to talk to each other uh, and learn about the latest research uh, to inform evidence-based practices. Um, and then throughout the year, we also run uh, uh, an education and cognition journal club where we host the same group of people, educators, researchers, uh, policymakers, students, uh, to engage in discussions about selected journal articles uh, so that they become more informed consumers of education research. Awesome, awesome. These are great points. It just emphasizes, you know, the importance of, uh, you know, informing the practical aspect of the research uh, in act, informing the practical aspect of theory into uh, practical application that it can help all levels of learning, not just at the university level. And as we near the end of the runtime for this podcast, Dr. Kim, you've talked a lot about your lab, the EDCOG lab, and we wanted to also ask you, uh, for our listeners, what roles do undergraduates specifically have in helping you to progress in your research findings in the EDCOG lab? And what do you look for in potential applicants that are interested in joining your EDCOG lab? Yeah, so undergrads are a big part of the research in our, in our lab. So, you know, kind of at the senior level, there's me and Dr. Faria Sana, who are the co-PIs for the lab. We have a couple of postdocs. Uh, and then every year we have usually about a dozen undergrad researchers. Uh, and typically, uh, undergrads in our lab uh, do a two-year cycle. So they come in as a second or third year student doing a research project, and then they return in their fourth year to do a thesis. So that allows us to get some really good, high quality research uh, from our undergrads that can lead to publications uh, for them as well. Um, and what I'm looking for is uh, strong academic performance, uh, psychology, neuroscience, behavior background, understanding of statistics, and most importantly, genuine interest in uh, education and cognition. Someone who would really love to help figure out ways to improve uh, educational practices uh, for them and for all students at McMaster University and everywhere. Perfect. Thank you so much. And on that note, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Um, thank you once again, Dr. Kim, for joining us and discussing your research of the science of learning and the role of instructors, students, and in promoting durable learning, and especially discussing at the end how um, undergrads can get involved in your research. Um, we really re appreciate your time and we hope you have a rest, a good rest of the day. Thank you, Dr. Kim. Thank you. Take yeah. care.